This episode is brought to you by the members and donors of the Best of the Left podcast. For details on membership, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, Counterspin, Real Time with Bill Maher, Ring of Fire, and The Colbert Report. The bonus clip for our iPhone app users today is another great segment from The Daily Show. TV the last few days watching the inspiring displays of the American spirit, the drama, the celebration, showing the true glory and power of what America can accomplish. Welcome to the conservative comeback and the beginning of the end of the Pelosi Congress, CPAC 2010. Yeah, motherfuckers! Real America held their yearly Olympics, the Conservative Political Action Conference, and this year's Festival of Whites brought a record-breaking 10,000 people to D.C. for speeches by the brightest stars of the conservative movement, or as they refer to it, the conservative Woodstock. Woodstock for conservatives. This is like our Woodstock, <laughs> except unlike the left gathering, our women are beautiful. In the left's defense, their women were naked, high, and in constant do-it mode. That was their Woodstock. By the way, that's uh, Nancy Pelosi. And that's, and that's from Woodstock 94. She, she's a hippie. And much like Woodstock, the CPAC convention skipped right past enjoyable high and went right to, I'm freaking out, man! Everyone's out to get me! Now, who are we up against? And I want to define that enemy. They are... Liberals. The socialist agenda. They are progressives. A vile liberal agenda. They are Che Guevarians. They are Castroites. Tyranny. The radical left. Trotskyites. Maoists. Stalinists. Leninists. Marxists. Out of touch liberal elite. They're all our enemies. Who'd I leave out? Uh. <laughs> lesbian environmentalists for Reform Judaism? I'm, I'm pretty sure you covered all your enemies. Liberal neo-monarchists. Liberal neo-monarchists? That doesn't even mean anything. New left-wing royalty? It's like just a word scramble. We must always fight against putting ape fallopian tubes. It's meaningless. But of course, like Woodstock, CPAC was all about the message, man. And like Woodstock, the message was completely incoherent. America will not endure government-run health care, a new and expensive entitlement, and inexplicable and surely vanishing cuts in Medicare. Wait, what? <laughs> you know what? Real-life Troy McClure is right. <laughs> America will not endure government-run health care if it destroys our beloved Medicare. So this thing kind of seems to be the opposite of Woodstock, but at least it's not Altamont. Oh my God, it's Altamont! Ah! I think 2010 is gonna be a phenomenal year for the conservative cause. And I think Barack Obama is a one-term president. Now, if you excuse me, the light is eating away at my skin. Well, if Dick Cheney says it, he's never wrong. My belief is we will, in fact, be greeted as liberators. I think they're in the, in the last throes, if you will, of the insurgency. Sorry, did I, say, did I say never wrong? I meant always wrong. I'm telling you, that's not my friend Harry Whittington. Oh, oh. I had funny follow-ups to that. Dick Cheney is a guy saying it wasn't his friend Harry Whittington, it was a bird. And, and he shot it. No, 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 don't try and make it up to me now. But it wasn't all heavy breathing and scary talk. There were some moments of levity as well. Next is Mr. Stephen Baldwin. I don't know if he needs an introduction. You think Stephen Baldwin doesn't need an introduction? <laughs> Trust me, even within the Baldwin family, Stephen Baldwin needs an introduction. When he goes home for the holidays, his mom is like, which one are you again? 
Are you the troubled one or the Christian one? Although the conference did have anger issues, there were some beautiful moments, especially relating to Go Pride, a gay Republican organization that was invited to participate, although even that moment of redemption came in the form of an angry mob. I'd like to condemn CPAC for bringing Go Pride to this event. Bring it, bring it. I love it. I love it. The lesbians at Smith College protest better than you do. Yeah. Hey. Oh, in fact, on a scale of bi-curious twinks at Oberlin to the transgendered glee chorus at Wesleyan, I'd say your protest is a notch below the Fordham buddies. Oh! By the way, that's the, uh, that's the name of my acapella group when I was a fellow. Here in Washington, D.C., with a kickoff to perhaps the biggest single event on the conservative calendar that is not Ronald Reagan's birthday, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Today marked day one of the annual three-day gathering of conservative activists, conservative elected officials, conservative media figures, and various other conservative types, many of whom we'll be discussing later on in the show. This year, the biggest reception for anyone came in response to a surprise unannounced guest. There is one man in particular we all know who certainly has taught me what it means to have the courage of your convictions. Often before big speeches like this one, I ask his opinion, I seek his advice. Well, today, instead, I brought him with me. A welcome like that's almost enough to want to make me run for office again. You know who was cheering louder than the Republicans in that hall? <laughs> Democrats. Democrats all across the country going, Cheney Palin 2012, oh please do it, please do it. Mr. Cheney, very much enjoying himself. Uh, he did vow not to actually run again. But for politicians who probably will run, their courting of the CPAC audience today did not apparently extend to making sure that what they told that audience was true. One of the serial offenders today was former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney. Let's ask the Obama folks why they say no. No to a balanced budget, no to reforming entitlements, no to malpractice reform. You want to see President Obama saying no to medical malpractice reform? Now, I don't believe malpractice reform is a silver bullet. But I've talked to enough doctors to know that defensive medicine may be contributing to unnecessary costs. So, so, so I'm proposing that we move forward on a range of ideas about how to put patient safety first and let doctors focus on practicing medicine. Lots of people really do say no to malpractice reform, at least as Republicans have proposed it. President Obama is not one of those people. But do go on, Mr. Romney. No to tax cuts that create jobs. No to tax cuts. You know that giant stimulus package that just had its one-year birthday yesterday? That was also one of the biggest tax cuts in American history. True. Well, while you're on a roll here, Mr. Romney, try giving national security politics a shot. On our watch, the conversation with a would-be suicide bomber will not begin with the words, you have the right to remain silent. 
unless, of course, that would-be suicide bomber is would-be suicide bomber Richard Reed, who was told that he had the right to remain silent roughly five minutes after he was arrested back in 2001 when Republicans were running the show. Mitt Romney was not alone in this insult to his audience's intelligence today. Here's Republican Congressman Thaddeus McCotter of Michigan, for example. Thaddeus McCotter is supposed to be one of the Republican Party's big wonks. He's chairman of the Republican House Policy Committee. I've heard that the Republican Party and the conservative movement constitutes the party of no. I think a look at the facts should disabuse people of that notion. When the American people ask for fiscal integrity and discipline in government spending, the Democrats said no. I understand why Mr. Charisma wants to say that it's Republicans who are the champions of fiscal integrity and discipline in government spending, but as long as those phrases, fiscal integrity and discipline in government spending, still have meaning as phrases in English, Republicans cannot call themselves that when they're the folks who passed the totally unfunded Medicare Part D Prescription Drug Act in 2003, for example, along with two equally unfunded but ginormous Bush tax cuts, which blew the deficit sky high. And if we're going to talk about fiscal integrity, there is also the matter of the accounting tricks that the government of George W. Bush used to keep two massively expensive wars off the government books, a practice that the Democrat who succeeded Mr. Bush is now ending. When the American people ask for smaller deficits and a reduction of the debt, the Democrats said no. I know this pains you guys, but the truth about who grows debt while in office is exactly the opposite of what Mr. McCotter would like to make the CPAC audience clap for. In the last 30 years, it's been Republican presidents who have exploded the debt at record rates. The patron, patron saint of fiscal conservatism, Ronald Reagan, grew the debt by 189% while he was in office. It was also seven Republican senators who recently single-handedly stopped Congress from creating a bipartisan deficit commission. Thanks Thanks for playing, though, Congressman McCotter. Today's roster of speeches wasn't all about insulting the intelligence of the audience at CPAC. It was also an educational experience. For instance, did you know that President Obama created this mythical health care crisis for his own political benefit? You create the perception of a crisis in order to be able to ride to the rescue and achieve your self-indulgent purposes of controlling the distribution of income in America. So whether it is the crisis in health care, which is a notion you're getting away with peddling despite the fact that America has the greatest health care in the world. Yes. According to former Republican Majority Leader Dick Armey, Mr. Obama has created the perception of a crisis when it comes to health care. Want to see what that fake crisis looks like? In 1960, health care spending was about 5% of our GDP. In 1970, it was up to about 7%. By 1980, 9%. By 1990, it was up to 12%. By 2000, we were spending 14% of our GDP on health care. By last year, our health care spending constituted more than 17% of our entire economic output as a nation, and that's counting everything. In 10 years, it's projected to be one out of every $5 in the entire American economy. That's the crisis President Obama has apparently created out of thin air for his own political gain. He apparently started working on this in 1970 when he was nine years old. It's very precocious. One of the most frequently used bash President Obama applause lines today was offered up early on by one of the day's first speakers, Florida Senate candidate and Tea Party favorite Marco Rubio. You know, a week ago, we didn't know we were going to make it here. We were watching this, all the images of that winter weather, this extraordinary blizzard that even impacted government. I don't know if you know this, but the Congress couldn't meet to vote on bills. The regulatory agencies couldn't meet to set new regulations either. And the president couldn't find anywhere to set up a teleprompter to announce new taxes. I mean, they do kind of got him here. That, I, can you believe that guy uses a teleprompter? Do you notice the very, very beginning of that clip? Very beginning there. Oh, hey there, what's that? Hey there, hi there, hi there. What's that thing about people in glass houses, people behind glass teleprompters, making fun of teleprompters? Senator Jim DeMint, you want to give this one a shot too? 
I think we've, we've confirmed you can't govern from a teleprompter. <laughs> Says the guy reading off a pair of teleprompters. Woohoo! While totally lacking in self-awareness, Mr. DeMint did succeed in offering the CPAC crowd some of the reddest of the red meat that was thrown to them today. We now see all too clearly that the hope and change the Democrats had in mind was nothing more than a retread of the failed and discredited socialist policies that have been the enemy of freedom for centuries all over the world. The enemy of freedom. As I said before, CPAC is a big deal. This, this is where conservative politicians go to hone their messages, to align themselves with where the modern conservative movement is. And judging from the speeches at the podium today, the modern conservative movement, at least in the mind of its politicians, uh, is in la-la land. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. Army's at CPAC, and he's going to tell us that we have the best healthcare system in the country. Oh, come on, dude. This is just this is nothing but a joke. Clip number nine. Incompetent president, perhaps, in our lifetime. You have no ability. You only have talent. And your purpose is income redistribution. Your methods are transparent. You create the perception of a crisis in order to be able to ride to the rescue and achieve your self-indulgent purposes of controlling the distribution of income in America. So whether it is the crisis in health care, which is a notion you're getting away with peddling despite the fact that America has the greatest health care in the world. <laughs> the greatest science, the greatest facility, the greatest practitioners, the greatest accessibility, the greatest invention and inventiveness and innovation, and that which is copied, in fact, by the rest of the world. It needs not to be taken over by the government so that you can control the distribution of health care services in America. It simply means needs to have reform in those obstructionist existing current government programs that are interfering with achieving the greater efficiency that we're capable of doing. <laughs> what a joke this guy is, man. I mean, the thing is, they're so removed from reality that in their mind, there is no problem with the health care system in the country. Well, they got plenty of money. They pay their whatever they pay, right? And they get great health care. They're like, what's the problem? as long as you're willing to pay through the nose. and the, But to them, it's such a small percentage of their income. Dick Arby's a multimillionaire. And he did that by representing corporate America and all those insurance companies. So to him, he's like, healthcare goes, ding, who cares? Meanwhile, we're dying over here, right? And we're nervous about whether they're gonna cover us or not, how much it costs. Well, if I have this much deductible and then that. And so what he tells uh, the rest of us, oh, no, no, no. Did you see the way Darissa said, oh, this purported crisis in health care that Obama, yeah, Obama came up with it. It didn't, it's not real, yeah. Ask an average American if he has no problem paying his health care bill, that he doesn't think there's a crisis at all. It's like the easiest thing in the world. Oh, you pay the bill, no problem, yeah, and then they take care of you. Yeah, that is not how it's working for most of us, okay? And then, of course, it's nonsense about greatest system this, greatest that. We're ranked number 37 in the world. We, uh, we spend on average $7,200. Japan spends $2,400. They, they live six years longer than we do on average. If our health care system is so great, why are we dying much younger than the Japanese who are spending about a third of the money that we're spending? It's just lies. And you know, in the beginning, he explained exactly why he's saying all that stuff. Oh, this is income redistribution. 
We don't want that. Oh, no, don't touch the rich's money. Don't touch the wealthy money. Get out of here. Okay? Well, we get to keep our money. And then if you guys have problems with your health care, who gives a damn? Look, they've been fighting this income redistribution for a long time, the richest people in America. Okay? They get to do their tax loopholes. They get to have their offshore uh, tax accounts, uh, their bank accounts, where they hide the tax money from, etc. They've been doing income redistribution for a long, long time. It's just your money is being distributed to them, and you don't know it. And Dick Harmy doesn't represent you. He represents them. I can't change. I am more proud of this show and love working on it more than anything else I've ever done in my life. And the members who sign up and stick with the show are the ones who allow me to follow my passion. Members sign up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year to support the show. In return, besides my undying gratitude, they also receive bonus material through the members-only raw feed. This includes audio and video content from the show and bonus material that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. All of this is delivered in organized feeds so members can access what they want and ignore what they don't. If you're a regular listener of this show and appreciate the service it provides, please consider becoming a member by visiting the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks a lot. Talking earlier about the Conservative Political Action Conference, but neglected to discuss its headliner, Glenn Beck and his magic erasable truth board. <laughs> Of course, the anti-elitist everyman Beck did travel with his chalk caddies, <laughs> Thomas and Paine, to deliver his message of what ails America. This is the disease in America. It's not just spending, it's not just taxes, it's not just corruption, it is progressivism. Progressivism is the disease, and worst of all, it's spread by the commandeer tick. <laughs> Check yourself and your children after playing outside. <laughs> now I consider myself a pretty sharp tack. Not just gonna take Glenn Beck's word that progressivism is bad till I hear why. The argument was, well, you're a Marxist. You're a communist. No, 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 I'm not. I'm a progressive. Well, what's the difference? Revolution or evolution? That's the difference. Revolution or evolution? Well, they're no difference except one requires a gun and the other does it slowly, piece by piece. So, progressives are slow, unarmed communists? <laughs> That's the worst kind of commie. What, what have these progressives done to us? What have they done? After the war, after the progressives got into office with Woodrow Wilson, he gives us the income tax. Teddy Roosevelt was the first one to say, we should have universal health care. We should limit some of their choices. Prohibition. So he took away the alcohol. And we never got it back. <laughs> Well, we never got the health care anyway. But I think you've got his point. See, this idea that you can tax the people to pay for things that the government elected by the people think is for the common good, that's the road to ruin. That's progressivism. How did Glenn Beck learn that all this was bad? I educated myself. I went to the library. The books are free. Glenn, 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 the library isn't free! It's paid for with tax money! Free public libraries are the result of the progressive movement to communally share books. The first public library was the Boston Public Library in 1854. It's statement of purpose. Every citizen has the right to access community-owned resources. Community-owned? That sounds just like communists! You're a communist! It's like saying diet plans can't help you people. I learned that when I was dropping weight at Weight Watchers. 
For more on how progressivism is a cancer on American society, we go to Samantha B reporting live from the alternate universe where America was saved from the scourge of progressivism. <laughs> Samantha B, thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. Yellowstone National Tire Fire. I'm sorry. In your universe, I believe it's known as Yellowstone National Park. And, and Sam, I, I don't mean to, I know mm -hmm. you're in the yes. progressive list universe, but what, what, what about the beard? Where's oh. the... <laughs> All the ladies have them. <laughs> Once we said no thanks to the government telling pharmaceutical companies they couldn't dump experimental drugs in the water supply, the kind that give women beards. So in, in the world you're in, no income tax? No Teddy Roosevelt, mm -hmm. never existed, no Woodrow Wilson, no national parks, no antitrust laws. It's pretty fun! <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I know that probably gets bleeped in your universe. So oh. every, everybody there is pretty happy. It's, it's... And how? No taxes to pay for police or fire departments? You get to keep all your money that you make from the factory that's owned by the guy that also owns the town and the store. You know, the factory you've worked at since you were five. I guess money is really the wrong word. Credit to the store, really. Apparently, when I get out of debt, I will get paid in gold. Wow. That's awfully shiny. Good day. Oh, sorry. I got to get that. What? Hello? The house is on fire again. Did you try shooting at the flames? Hello? I'm sorry. I guess he hung up. Is, I don't is know. that a... Uh... Oh. It's a phone and a gun. There's a camera in there, too. See? Say no, cheese. No, no, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. You, you have a gun phone. Oh, God, we have a gun everything. Gun phones, gun radios, guntle floss. That reminds me, I actually had polar bear for lunch. Do I have polar bear in my teeth? No, no, you don't, you don't. Okay. But, but, but Sam, what, what about all the strides mm -hmm. that we've made in the last hundred years in protecting uh, the disenfranchised, raising standards of living? Some of that was progressivism. It, it was done for progress. How, how could you vote against all of that? <laughs> vote? <laughs> John, don't let the goatee or the penis fool you. I'm a woman. I can't vote, you weirdo. Your uncle had an old saying. If you don't vote, then you can't complain. Sizing up candidates first election. this amazing uh, poll from Pew Research Center. They asked Americans about, hey, do you know who holds uh, U.S. debt? Where does our oil come from? How many uh, members of the Supreme Court are women? You know, the usual civics uh, questions. And on some questions, people did great, better than I expected. Um, uh, they, who holds the most U.S. debt? 59% of Americans knew that, that it's China, right? I'm impressed by that. Now, it was multiple choice, so it's a little bit easier. So it, what they call the monkey score is 25%. That means a monkey can go in there and just A, B, C, D, and he'll, he's going to get 25% on the score, right? But overall, some numbers are encouraging. They know what percentage of our oil we uh, uh, import, et cetera, et cetera, right? Here's two things they definitively did not know. Um, how many GOP votes were there for the health care bill in the Senate? You know, the, in the Senate, we have the incredibly weak version of health care reform. How many Republican votes did that get? The correct answer is zero. Only 32% of Americans knew that. And remember, 25% is the monkey score. <laughs> That's just randomness, right? So Obama and the Democrats didn't even tell the American people, hey, do you know that none of them voted for it? Do you know that they're all blocking it? Look, you can't just, you know, somebody might say, hey, during the State of the Union, he kind of alluded to that. You can't kind of allude to it one time. You see how Republicans do talking points over and over and over again. Here, we're not even telling the American people they're doing obstructionism. It makes it seem like the Democrats are just, you know, oh, they didn't want to do the health care bill, which actually there's an argument for, but they're certainly using the uh, Republicans as cover, at the very least. Here's the second thing they didn't know. 
the number of votes in the Senate to break a filibuster. That's 60. That's what all the bills now magically require. Before the filibuster was extreme, now everything requires 60 votes. How many Americans know that? 26%. Almost exactly the monkey score. They have no idea that the Republicans are blocking all the bills. They don't know they're using filibusters. They don't know that the Democrats need 60 votes. They don't know that the, Senate, that the Republicans aren't giving them a single vote. They don't know any of that. And you wonder why they blame it on the Democrats. Because they think you have the world's largest majority, and you're choosing not to use it. What, what kind of a fool doesn't make his own case? The Republicans keep telling everybody, oh, the government bureaucrats and the death panels, and look at this, they're screwing up health care reform, and it's terrible, and it's terrible. And the Democrats don't say, hey, look, we'd love to do stronger reform, but the Republicans are blocking us. They don't even make that case. Nobody even knows about it. These are either the world's worst politicians, and that is a very legitimate case to be made, that the Democrats are the world's worst politicians, or they want to lose on purpose. They don't want to tell the American people Republicans are blocking it, because then it might unblock it. <laughs> right now, the Senate version of the bill is perfect for corporate America. Every part of the health care corporations wins from that bill, and even that bill uh, is apparently too strong uh, for the Republicans, and and the Democrats didn't get it done. So right now we have the status quo where corporate America wins even more. Whose fault is it? Look at all these losers, you find them everywhere. They're fucked up and annoying, but somehow you seem to care. It's easier to live, but something makes you stick around. You can't watch from above and keep your tentacles in Washington Post columnist George Will has had a perfectly consistent position on the filibuster. It's good when Republicans use it, and it's bad when Democrats use it. Will defended the good kind of filibuster in a 1993 column headlined, The Framer's Intent. He praised the framers of the Constitution for protecting, quote, the right of a minority to use extended debate to obstruct Senate action, close quote. Note that in 1993, the Senate had a Republican minority. Ten years later, with a Democratic minority in the Senate, Will wrote a column headlined, Coup Against the Constitution, that attacked the filibuster. Quote, if Senate rules exploited by an anti-constitutional minority are allowed to trump the Constitution's text and two centuries of practice, the Senate's power to consent to judicial nominations will have become a Senate right to require a supermajority vote for confirmation. Close quote. Now, seven years after that, we once again have a Republican minority using the filibuster against a Democratic majority. And now we have a column from Will headlined, For Liberals, the Filibuster is Now the Enemy. Actually, Will says in this February 25th column that Liberals' real enemy is James Madison, the father of the Constitution. Will has the chutzpah to accuse politicians of having situational ethics when it comes to the filibuster. When George Will writes about the filibuster, it's hard to discern any kind of ethics at all. It seems a little strange, but I just can't explain why I'm tearing out a page and then I'm sending it out over the ocean and I've been feeling down lately ever since I met you, baby. People say I'm acting crazy. They say that I'm This is the filibuster. I mean, all you have to say is, I'm going to filibuster this, and then the Democrats back down and say, okay, 
fine. Right. And they're, they're, um, there they're needs too to be nice. Reform. They're too nice. And Obama wants to be the nice guy. And he and he, he says, you know, we, we, we can't be partisan. We need to be collegiate. We need to be in there and be and behave like gentlemen. And America doesn't know that. They don't care if senators get along with each other. Right. All they care about is that nothing's getting done right now. And they don't know that, that, that it's that, that they don't understand the filibuster process. Well, you know, know, it's interesting you mentioned that my friend Martin Lewis, the fifth Beatle, sent me this. I thought it was so interesting. I didn't even see this. Nobody's covered this. That I saw that in this, this 1964 Civil Rights Act, when that was before Congress, they filibustered for 57 days. Was that the Strom Thurmond thing? Yeah. Well, that was part of it. Well, he also yeah. filibustered the 57 Civil Rights Act for 24 hours. But Robert Byrd, a Democrat, filibustered on this one in 64 for 14 hours. I, I downloaded it off iTunes, by the way. It's, it's fantastic if you're, if you're jogging. It's great, but, great, but, great, great to make love to, I'm is sure. It, is it <laughs> so what but you're you know saying what? is that you want to see Orrin Hatch up there for uh, yes. 24 hours? Yes, but, but see, yeah. there's also well, another message. Fundamental reform doesn't come from bipartisanship. And it seems to me bipartisanship has become appeasement. Barack Obama won an election based upon a set of principles. Fight for them. Yes. And I think what we want to do... Right. Yeah. You need... You need, you need Obama, as, as crazy as it sounds, you need Obama to be more like Bush. I've always said that. Or, he or, needs or Bush's balls. Or Lyndon Johnson. Or FDR. Right. You know, this is the last or great FDR. Democrat yeah. without but, real yeah. reform. In those days, you had to actually stand up and filibuster. You had to read the phone book or the Bible. Right. Nowadays, it's just called intent to filibuster. You don't have to stand up. Any, any Republican who wants to filibuster now should be required to stand up and read aloud from Twilight until <laughs> that, that should but, be the law but intent to filibuster it, it kind of reminds me Seth of that Star Trek episode where <laughs> I you know the one I'm, talk, I'm familiar with you it. know what I'm, <laughs> well there was an episode where they, they, some, they went to some planet and they didn't have to fight wars anymore yes remember they just had to walk into yes. like, what is it they walked into a uh, yeah they, they walk into a, a chamber and they disintegrate themselves right <laughs> that, and what is the speech that Captain Kirk... Wow. Really? You want me to do this? <laughs> I do. All right. All and right, Captain here we go. Kirk says... He says, death, disease, destruction, horror. <laughs> That's what war is, Councilman. That's what makes it a thing to be avoided. You've made it neat and simple. So neat and simple that you've had no reason to stop it. And you've had it for 500 years. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty much... And that's, and that's the problem with filibustering. They've made it neat and simple. They have made it neat and simple. Since the beginning of our country, the Civil War, the filibuster was like once a decade. I mean, it was just rarely used. The Republicans in the last year have filibustered 80% of legislation. And on bullshit issues that, they, that, that, that vote 90 to 10 anyway. Right. Why can't the Democrats do like what Clinton did to Newt in 95, remember? He shut down Go the ahead, government, shut down. and they made right. the, 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 they made the Republicans the bad guys. We Shouldn't... should call their bluff. We should right. call their bluff and say, you want to filibuster? Go ahead and do it. We challenge you to do it and close I agree. Instead, and I would say, we're going to pass bills with 51 votes. 50, I, I haven't taken math in a long time. 51 is still a majority. Right. I don't know where this number 60 came from. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. I don't think it's radical to ask senators to vote. I don't think it's radical to expect senators to fulfill their constitutional responsibilities.
In the spring of 2005, Senate Republicans, led by then-Majority Leader Bill Frist, started talking about something called the nuclear option. The nuclear option was a put-up-or-shut-up ultimatum to Senate Democrats. Allow up-or-down, no-filibuster votes on President Bush's judicial, judicial nominees, excuse me, or else, or else Republicans would kill the filibuster. They would just get rid of it. Well, now, you know, Republicans never really had to go nuclear because Democrats were very afraid of this threat. Some of them went into I'm afraid deal-making mode at the time. Fourteen senators, seven Republicans and seven Democrats, then struck a deal to allow President Bush's judicial nominees to go forward. Crisis averted, the filibuster lived, Bush got his judges, and Democrats kept the filibuster alive, although they promised not to use it very much. Great deal, right? When Republicans threatened to go nuclear on Democrats back then, it's because Democrats, they said, were abusing the filibuster. Here's what that looked like in that Congress. 54 filibusters when Democrats were in the minority at that time. Then when the Republicans became the minority in 2007, boing, 112 filibusters. Republicans now have a de facto standing filibuster on practically everything. They've made it so that passing anything in the Senate requires 60 votes, a supermajority every time. This situation has never existed before. This was not the situation in any previous Congress ever, really. I know that Beltway reporting always makes it seem like 60s normal. This is the way it's always been. Democrats did it too when they were in the minority. It is not true. This really has never happened before in the history of the U.S. Senate. When Republicans were mad about Democratic filibusters in 2005 and they threatened to kill the filibuster altogether, Democrats were doing nothing anywhere near as extreme as what is being done now. And so, finally. After starting to figure out that maybe this is a problem, it's Democrats now who are coming around to a nuclear state of mind. I've never seen a time when the operating norm to get anything passed was a supermajority of 60 votes. No matter what, no matter what the bill is, it's filibustered. It's required to get 60 votes. You can't rule by a supermajority. You can't govern if you require a supermajority. That man is both the vice president and the president of the Senate, don't forget, who would have a key role to play in setting or changing Senate rules. Even longtime defenders of the filibuster, like Democrat Chris Dodd of Connecticut, are now acknowledging that the Senate has become, in Senator Dodd's words, a dysfunctional institution, describing Republicans' current use of the filibuster as abusive. Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is also sending the alarm, telling Roll Call newspaper a constitutional majority is 51 votes. Is there never anything that can be done without 60 votes? It isn't legitimate in terms of passing legislation. Senator, uh, excuse me, Speaker Pelosi noted that more than 200 bills that have passed the House are bottled up in the Senate now, a vast majority of which got more than 50 Republican votes when they passed the House. Today we moved a bit beyond just complaining about this state of affairs towards some action to fix it. Democratic Senators Tom Harkin and Jean Shaheen introduced legislation to change the filibuster rules in the Senate finally. Under the proposal, if 60 votes couldn't be achieved to break a filibuster, then after two days, that threshold would drop to 57 votes. Two days later, it would drop to 54 votes. Two days later, it would drop to a simple majority of 51 votes needed to break a filibuster. The abuse of the filibuster by Republicans is unprecedented. It has become routine. It's become increasingly reckless. It is wrecking our nation. The filibuster is tearing apart the glue that holds our nation together. So says Democrat Tom Harkin now. And as the Republicans get ready to cry foul over what Senator Harkin is trying to do, they should first check the archives of themselves from back when they tried to go nuclear just a few years ago. Let's get back to the way the Senate operated for over 200 years, up or down votes on the president's nominee, no matter who the president is, no matter who's in control of the Senate. This week, President Obama uh, suggested that he may try to appoint his uh, labor relation, National Labor Relations Board uh, Senate, excuse me, can we back up for a second? Thank you very much. Keep going. 
Thank you very much. Senator McConnell, they're calling for up or down votes on nominees, no matter who's in control. This week, President Obama's nominee to head up the National Labor Relations Board went before the Senate. His nomination was killed when 33 senators voted to filibuster him. 33 senators voting to block an up or down vote, including Republican Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Up or down votes on the president's nominee, no matter who the president is, no matter who's in control of the Senate. Starts with H, four syllables, rhymes with zipocracy. When President Obama suggested this week that he may try to appoint his labor relations nominee anyway when the Senate is in recess, Republican Senator Orrin Hatch objected, saying, quote, I sincerely hope the White House does not circumvent the will of the Senate by appointing him when the Senate is out of session. And by the will of the Senate, Senator Hatch means the 33 out of 100 senators who voted no, not the 52 who voted yes. That's what's considered the will of the Senate now, unless it really is time to go nuclear. Joining us now is someone whom I suspect may disagree with me on this, former chairman of the Democratic Party, former Vermont Governor Howard Dean. Governor Dean, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming well, in. I only mildly disagree, Rachel. I'm always in favor of anything nuclear involving Republicans. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they are so irresponsible. They really, honestly, I've said this for a long time, they put the good of their party ahead of their good of the, the good of the country, and when that happens, they don't deserve to serve in office anymore. And I think we're there now. The only re uh, regret that I have is the filibuster has been useful when we've had to stop extremists' uh, ideologues, ideologue, such as some of the people on the Supreme Court that decided corporations giving money to influence politics in this country uh, was a good idea uh, last week. Uh, and so we do need to block some of these extremist activist judges that the Republicans put on uh, the Supreme Court uh, from time to time. So someday we'll be in the minority again. I hope it won't be soon. And uh, we want to think about that before we get rid of the filibuster. But I do think that the Republicans are so irresponsible that we just may have no choice whatsoever than have a wholesale reform of the Senate rules. Democrats um, are in charge now. Republican filibuster abuse is off the charts. What Republicans were complaining about when they were trying to get rid of the filibuster, uh, then they were describing what was going on then as extreme, just absolutely has no comparison to what's happening now. It just doesn't seem like there's any accountability for that unless Democrats play hardball. I, I think that's true, Rachel. I, I mean, it's just too bad, really. But the Republicans have decided to wreck the system uh, in order to get their way. And I think that's bad for the country. Uh, and I think the country comes first. So even though the, the, uh, having a filibuster would help us in the long run if we get back into the minority, uh, which statistically someday we're likely to do, hopefully not soon, I think for the good of the country, we probably have to go forward, eliminate the filibuster. The other thing we've got to do is eliminate this ridiculous hold process. Um, you know, Richard Shelby has holds on 80 people simply because he wants some pork for his home district. Right. And here the Republicans are screaming and yelling about pork and earmarks, and they're holding up 80 people simply so, that, so Senator Shelby can get some more pork and earmarks. This is a bad scene for the country, so probably it has to be cleaned up. And Senator Shelby did ultimately drop that. Oh, now, now he's just holding three Rachel, people. Rachel, he only dropped it after it was exposed on CBS News and his own constituents were disgusted with him. Well, that's, that's the, I think that's part of the important, that's the importance of this issue here. I mean, you are famously author of the 50-state the strategy that helped Democrats swamp Republicans in 2006. In terms of political strategy, looking ahead to 2010, can Democrats talking about Republican obstruction, things like what Shelby did, things like filibuster abuse, Democrats talking about what Republicans are doing wrong in the Senate, does that reap electoral gains? It, it will help some focusing on Republican obstructionism yeah. because the Republicans are obstructionists. They have nothing to offer. They haven't offered anything. But complaining about the way they're doing stuff in Washington sort of seems like weak sauce It's to not me. enough. Yeah. Well, our problem is we're not tough enough. If George Bush had been president of the United States and wanted health care reform, an unlikely scenario, but if he'd wanted it, it would have been on his desk in by eight, you know, eight months by August because George Bush used reconciliation, the budget process, to get past everything with 51 votes five times. We haven't used it once. We haven't shown the spine to do that. And we need, a, a, once again, a spinal transplant in the Democratic Party to play hardball. This is what the country's at stake here. This is not about Democratic versus Republican anymore. This is about whether we want to move forward and have real reform or whether we want to let a small ideological obstructionist minority screw up the country so they can take power again. And I don't think we ought to put up with that. You wrote an, an open letter uh, that I saw on Daily Coast this week uh, titled, uh, You Still Have the Power, sort of a pep talk 
pep talk for progressives. If you were DNC chair right now, what would priority number one be for you in terms of re-energizing the progressive base? Would it be just getting something passed, using reconciliation, moving against the yeah. filibuster? Yeah, we've got it. We've got to get something passed. You can't run an election without anything passed. One of the biggest problems in the health care bill is it doesn't go into effect until 2013. We need something that's going to go in effect by 2010. We're obviously it's too late for comprehensive health care reform, but we still can move forward with some significant reform, but it has to be in effect in 2010 so we can go to the folks and say, See those guys? They filibustered and brought the Senate to a standstill to bring pork to Alabama. We got you some health care reform. We didn't get everything you wanted because they stopped it, but we got you some health care reform. And the first half of that is nowhere near as powerful unless you've got the second half of that right. too, which is here's what we delivered. But fundamentally, right. for the sake of the Republic, we've got to reform the Senate because, as Chris Dodd said, it's a failed institution at this point. No, you didn't disagree with me after I all. Didn't. I'm so sore. My voice is gone to hell. This is one more sleepless night because we Hype rarely matches reality, and that was certainly the case with how a Tea Party meeting unfolded in Nashville two weeks ago. Conservative pundits were skewing reality once again by feeding America's gullible mainstream media ideas about how the angry Tea Partiers were going to create a political revolution in Nashville. The reality is that by the time the last angry Paul Revere impersonator left Nashville, the event had become more of a yawn than a statement. There are reasons for that. When Fox News conducted a poll and asked the question, what is the Tea Party movement all about, that Fox poll showed that 76% of the respondents said that it was a fruitless mix of racism and conspiracy theories. The poll showed that only 16% of the respondents said that the movement had anything to do with government or fiscal responsibility. That identity crisis is one reason the Nashville event was like one hand clapping. To put into perspective what a non-event the Nashville meeting actually was, you need to understand that fewer than 600 people actually showed up for what was supposed to be the event that was going to change American politics. For comparisons, 125,000 people showed up in San Diego for a comic book convention, and an average of 7,000 people show up to tour the Hershey Chocolate Factory every day. There were three reporters for every person who attended that Tea Party that called itself a political game changer. Those reporters were desperate for quotes that could sell newspapers and airtime. The biggest story that surfaced was that Sarah Palin had charged a $100,000 speaker fee. Part two of that story was that she was so unprepared that she had to read notes written in ink across the palm of her hand to answer questions that were planted and staged with the audience. If there really were any grassroots revolutionaries who wanted to attend, it's possible that the 550 per ticket charge to pay for Palin was way too pricey. I won't personally gain from being there. But there were other problems. Conservative bloggers flooded the net with criticism about how the Tea Party movement had become a money scam. Even neocon loyalists complained that wealthy Republicans now completely own the movement and that it's neither grassroots nor independent. Key ultra-conservative sponsors withdrew both their financial and political support. Spooked conservative speakers began making their exit from the scene like furry varmints escaping the Titanic. The media came away with tons of sound bites that will continue to shape the image of the Tea Party movement. Here's a collection of what Tea Partiers projected to those reporters during that week in Nashville. First, Tea Partiers are angry people. Next, angry Tea Partiers believe Obama is an Arab Muslim. How about this one? Angry Tea Partiers have become upset that America has become so multicultural. And then there was angry Tea Partiers believe an angry revolution is going to make America a better place to live. And then, of course, angry Tea Partiers were mostly made up of an aging, all-white, angry crowd. But one angry Tea Partier went as far as to tell a reporter this. This is a quote he gave. We have God on our side, he said. That's why we're so successful, and that's why they hate us. 
Well, I'm pretty sure that God's not angry enough to have been anywhere around that Nashville non-event. just a big weekend for one of the two teams in the Super Bowl. Two teams? Yes? Just two? Okay. It was also a big weekend for Sarah Palin. She was in Nashville giving a rousing speech to a for-profit convention of the most important grassroots movement in the country, the National Tea Party Convention. Little known fact, folks, the Boston Tea Party also turned a profit. Hence their slogan, no taxation without representation, but there is a two-drink minimum. Now, Palin, Palin selflessly volunteered her time and her bank account number, and she was worth every penny of her $100,000 speaking fee. Just listen to her bring it hot and hard to the supporters of President Obama. Now, a year later, I got to ask those supporters of all that, How's that hopey, changey stuff working out for you? Ha <laughs> ha, nailed them. <laughs> Finally, a slogan for her next presidential run, Pale in 2012, abandon all hope that anything will ever change. <laughs> oh, folks. Boom, boom, boom. And the nailing kept coming. This is about the people, and it's bigger than any king or queen of a tea party. And it's a lot bigger than any charismatic guy with a teleprompter. Now, of course, of course, folks, the Blago Chatosphere has been giving pale and heat for zinging Obama over his teleprompter just because she herself used a hando prompter. We've got to start reining in the spending. We have got to um, jumpstart these energy projects uh, that, again, we've heard so much about. Oh, big deal. Writing notes on your hand shows she's an average Jane, like those elites and their memory. So, what, what did she write? She started with core beliefs, energy, Budget cuts, she crossed out budget and wrote tax. And she brings it home with lift American spirits. I mean, I write basic information on my hand all the time. See? <laughs> this way, this way, you know, I figure out what this fleshy thing is up here. I remember I have a thumb. It's for those times when I'm doing this, and I can't, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do this, and I can't quite, trying to get something up like that, like that, I go, I go like, oh yeah, thumb, thumb. <laughs> also, it reminds me to give Sarah Palin a big thumbs up for standing up for the little guy, Rush Limbaugh. Last week, Palin rightfully demanded the resignation of White House Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel for calling liberal Democrats f***ing retarded. Well, El Rushbo used the R word himself when talking about liberal Democrats. Jim? Our political correct society is acting like some giant insults taking place by calling a bunch of people who are retards, retards. So now there's going to be a meeting. There's going to be a retard summit at the White House. But Palin explained to Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday why that was okay. Rush Limbaugh was using satire to bring attention to what this politically correct... word. Using satire. I didn't hear Rush Limbaugh calling a, a group of people whom he did not agree with effing retards. And we did know that Rahm Emanuel, it's been reported, did say that. There's a big difference there. Thank you. 
big difference. It was satire. Listen to Rush talk about the Democrats again. Our political correct society is acting like some giant insults taking place by calling a bunch of people who are retards, retards. So now there's going to be a meeting. There's going to be a retard summit at the White House. It's so subtle, you see? So many layers. And Sarah Palin knows that it is okay to call someone a retard if, like Rush, you clearly don't mean it. Which is why we should all come to her defense and say, Sarah Palin is a f***ing retard. Thanks for listening, everyone. So I just want to say right off the bat that as I'm speaking, the show has dropped off of the top 10 list over at Podcast Alley. We eked our way up into the list and then dropped out of it. So please head over there, either straight to podcastalley.com and search for the show, or there's a super simple link just over at bestoftheleft.com. takes you right to the voting page and takes 30 seconds. So it's a, it's a great way to support the show. It's great if you just get in the habit of doing it every month. Keep us up in the top 10 on the homepage and uh, help new people find the show. So now I, I, I want to get into something else. Uh, over the years, I've gotten lots of great, great positive comments about the show. And, uh, you know, a lot of them are kind of similar to talk about the show and why they like it. But one has stuck out in my mind for like three years. And this person wrote something that was, you know, completely unique. And they said, uh, first that they enjoyed the show and, and they talked about why the show was great in terms of politics, but then said that secretly the best part of the show was getting to listen to the host as he talks about his move from California to Washington, D.C., as he is following his dream to go make a difference in the world and get involved in politics. And so, of course, I love that. You know, I, about three years ago, I moved from California to D.C. You can obviously tell I'm interested in politics. And so I, I made the move uh, hoping to get a job and work in the system and make positive change for the world and, and all those sorts of things. And so it was great to, to get a comment from someone saying that they like to hear the stories about about me moving um, because I've certainly gotten plenty of comments kind of headed in the other direction that the show is great, but the host kind of sucks, and I always skip the end. So, so it was, it was good to hear that, and and I've always kind of had that comment in the back of my mind that uh, keeps me moving forward, telling stories at the end of the, at the end of the show when it uh, when you know when it feels right. So that comment is going to become relevant again very soon, I think, because as I've mentioned, I now that I'm doing the podcast full time, I get to do what has always really been my dream. The thing I've always really, really wanted to do, which is to travel, you know, not to travel to Washington, D.C. and settle down again, but to travel in, in general and kind of, um, well, not quite backpack around the world or, or anything, but uh, what I'm calling duffel bag around the world, <laughs> since I'll be, I'll, I'll be traveling a little bit heavier than, uh, than just a backpack. But that's basically the idea. And since I get the, the feeling that uh, there's at least a, a decent chunk of people out there who are interested in hearing those types of personal stories. I'll be telling hopefully interesting stories from my travels and, you know, and, and also previewing, uh, you know, talking about where I've been and what I've done, but also uh, giving you a sense of where I'm on my way to. So today I want to mention that, you know, right now I'm kind of in my staging area. I'm visiting my family in, in Tennessee, uh, but my next stop will be Chicago and the idea will be to head up there sometime in April. Ho you know, hopefully, hopefully not too long uh, into April, and hopefully nothing pops up that, that delays that by too much. And so I just want to throw that out there because I know there's going to be some people who uh, who want to give some words of wisdom or, or uh, great advice on the best way to move to Chicago. And I also want to throw out the the put out some feelers on this idea 
I'm very, very, very interested in going to a live taping of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and it occurred to me that if other people are interested, we should totally have a little uh, Best of the Left meetup and all go see the show together. So if you're in the Chicago area, the general vicinity, and have interest in doing that, send me an email and, and we'll see if we can get that put together. So that's just the real basic overview of what's going on and, and my plans for my personal life and then how that's going to impact the show. Now, I wanted to mention that this week will be the first week that there are three episodes, uh, you know, because now I'm doing 10 shows a month. So this week, there'll be three episodes, you know, starting today that uh, it, the show's going out over the weekend and then expect two episodes to come out planned for uh, Tuesday and then Thursday. And of course, the reason I get to do 10 episodes a month now is the great support of the members, which have allowed me to, to turn the show into a full-time job. And so, of course, now I want to thank some members, as, as I always do. First, David S. signed up for a membership back in November, on November 18th, and signed up for a full year in advance. And then Vincent L. signed up more recently on February 10th and, and signed up uh, above and beyond the, the standard uh, membership donation rate. So... Huge thanks to Vincent and David and all the members who make the show possible. You know, they, they make the show possible, they make 10 episodes a month possible, and they're now making my ability to, you know, really follow my dreams as I just uh, described possible. So huge thanks to all of them. So that'll be it for today. Uh, check out all the ways to support the show on the website in the big support box. Everything from, you know, donations and memberships to all, all sorts of stuff that doesn't cost any money at all. While you're there, check out all the ways to stay connected between shows, links to the Facebook page and Twitter account, and details on all of the sources and all the music used in the show is always linked up on the blog. So coming to you from Nashville uh, with a dire need for a, a new seamless way to sign off the show, my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.